That was amazing, just uh, having an opportunity to, I don't know what you were doing as you were worshipping, thinking, and maybe, if you're honest, humming along a little bit. What is it going to be like whenever we can uh, join our voices again? I think it's incredible to remember just the Holy Spirit's alive in each one of us. That's why it's special to come together. You know, when we're on our own, the Holy Spirit is there with us. He's real. He's alive. He's working in us. But in this group, the Holy Spirit's here in each of us in that individual way, ministering to us and ministering through us. So it's just wonderful to be uh, here together. And let's continue to spread the word. As Adele said, we're hoping to use a bit of the upstairs as well. So um, <clears throat> let's encourage everybody else to, to make the effort and get out and just experience what we're experiencing because there is no doubt it's different. It's nice to sit at home with your cup of tea and toast and, and watch church online, but it doesn't compare at all to the experience that we're having here. Sure, it doesn't. So, great to see you. <clears throat> During last week, I was up in the Pentland Hills. I'm not sure if it was exactly the same place where, where the video was, but I was up there, and it's amazing when you get to the top. It was a beautiful day. There was, the weather was so nice this week. Standing up there, you get perspective all around, looking south, looking north, seeing into Fife, seeing the hills, seeing the bridges in the distance, just seeing everything. You get a perspective that you don't get when you're, down, uh, when you're down in the sort of muddy bit in the valley. And the big story, God's big story does that for us. It gives us perspective, a considerably greater perspective than just a geographic one. This is a perspective for life, for who we are, for what we're here for, for our sense of purpose, and for ultimately where we're going to. That is God's big story. It's so important for us to have this perspective, to continually be thinking about it, because that gives us encouragement to keep going in the midst of things that are difficult, and it gives meaning to the seemingly mundane, and ultimately it gives us hope, the living hope that we read of in Scripture. Peter refers to it in 1 Peter 1 when he says this, now we live with great expectation we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, pure and undefiled, beyond the reach of change and decay. That's the big perspective, God's big story. God's big story was about creation in the, in the start, about the fall that happened when sin came in, about redemption, and then about restoration. Those are the four key areas of what this big story is all about. And it's very easy for us to narrow our view, isn't it, and focus in simply on the fall and redemption. And, and we miss out then. We miss out on the overriding purpose. We miss out on God's original intent. And we miss out on the thought that restoration is happening. And thinking, what does that mean, not just for us individually, but for, for all of creation? What does that thought of restoration mean to us? So it's great to keep that thought of God's big story in our minds. Last week, we encountered Jesus, the central character in this whole big story. Fully divine, fully human, son of God, son of man, the person that the whole story had been pointing towards up until that time. This week, we come to the most crucial events in Jesus' life, the events that completely 
changed history, human history forever. Jesus' death and his resurrection. Jesus arrived on the scene. The first, the first part of his life we don't know too much about. He was a refugee. He was in uh, Egypt for the first few years of his life. Then he, then he came with his family to Nazareth. We don't know an awful lot about what happened then. And then he burst onto the scene when he was about 30. That was when his public ministry began. That's when people started to notice. That's when he called people to him. That's when the, the attraction of just who he was became evident. Individuals started coming, then crowds started listening. He taught as no one had ever taught before. He taught with an authority that was astonishing for people. And he also lived with a compassion that people hadn't seen. He loved people. He reached out and he touched people. He healed people. He went to places and people and individuals that others wouldn't have gone near. He taught. He taught about a kingdom. He said that he was the king of the kingdom. He said that the kingdom was a kind kingdom. He taught with authority and compassion and people were amazed. Jesus told stories and Jesus invited others into God's big story. Jesus told us and showed us how life works best. And throughout Jesus' three years of public life and ministry, it all pointed to the inevitability of his death. Almost a third of the four Gospels is taken up with around about the final week of Jesus' life prior to his death, again, demonstrating the centrality of these events that were to come. In that last week, Jesus spent time with his disciples. He washed their feet. He taught them, he spoke to them, he told them things that they didn't fully grasp at the time, but as they reflected back, they saw. He said he was going to have to go. He said it was better that he went. They celebrated the Passover feast. Then he was betrayed by one of them. Then another denied him three times, and then the rest of the disciples deserted him. He was tried by the religious council, and he was sentenced to death by a reluctant Pilate. Let's just take a little bit of time to read about what happened next. I'm going to use the paraphrase, the message. The soldiers assigned to the governor took Jesus into the governor's palace and got the entire brigade together for some fun. They stripped him and dressed him in a red toga. They plaited a crown from branches of a thornbush and set it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand for a scepter. They knelt before him in mocking reverence. Bravo, king of the Jews, they said. Bravo. And they spit on him. And they hit him on the head with a stick. When they'd had their fun, they took off the tuga and put his own clothes back on. Then they proceeded out to the crucifixion. Along the way, they came on a man from Cyrene named Simon and made him carry Jesus' cross. Arriving at Golgotha, the place they call Skull Hill, they offered him a mild painkiller, a mixture of wine and myrrh. But when he tasted it, he, he wouldn't drink it. After they'd finished nailing him to the cross and were waiting for him to die, they whiled away the time by throwing dice for his clothes. Above his head, they had posted the criminal charge against him, 
This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Along with him, they also crucified two criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. People passing along the road jeered, shaking their hands in mock lament. You bragged that you could tear down the temple and then rebuild it in three days, so show us your stuff. Save yourself. If you're really God's son, come down from that cross. The high priests, along with the religion scholars and leaders, were right there mixing it up with the rest of them, having a great time poking fun at him. Ha, he saved others, he can't save himself. King of Israel, is he? And let him come down from that cross. We'll all become believers then. He was so sure of God. Well, let him rescue his son now, if he wants him. He did claim to be God's son, didn't he? Even the two criminals crucified next to him joined in the mockery. From noon to three, the whole earth was dark. Around mid-afternoon, Jesus groaned out of the depths, crying loudly, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Some bystanders who heard him said, he's calling for Elijah. One of them ran and got a sponge soaked in sour wine and lifted it up on a stick so he could drink. The others joked, don't be in such a hurry. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. But Jesus, again, crying out loudly, breathed his last. At that moment, the temple curtain was ripped in two, top to bottom. There was an earthquake and rocks were split in pieces. What's more, tombs were opened up and many bodies of believers asleep in their graves were raised. After Jesus' resurrection, they left the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. The captain of the guard and those with him, when they saw the earthquake and everything else that happened, were scared to death. They said, this has to be the Son of God. There were also quite a few women watching from a distance, women who'd followed Jesus from Galilee in order to serve him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Joseph, and the mother of the Zebedee brothers. <sighs> I'm not sure when you last took time to read that, to let that sink in. Jesus' death was absolutely essential, wasn't it? The sin condition that had entered all mankind was so universal, so insidious, that there was only one way it could be addressed, the willing sacrifice of a perfect, sinless person. And Jesus was the only one who fulfilled that description. That sacrifice of Jesus would pay the necessary price and once again open the way for that relationship between Creator God and, and us as His creation to be restored. God's original tent of that intimate, everlasting, personal relationship with Him to be freely given to anyone, anyone who believed what Jesus did. We can't overestimate the centrality of Jesus' death. Without it, that restoration of relationship with God and that living hope for the future, it just, it just wouldn't be there. Jesus' death was utterly dreadful. It was a complete scandal, wasn't it? He was completely innocent. 
The charges were trumped up. The people turned on him. Nothing, nothing about it made any sense. And yet Jesus didn't complain. He knew what it was about. Last week we saw an insight into Jesus' heart, seeing him describe himself as humble and gentle. And here that was displayed, humility and gentleness, indescribable strength under control. Last week, too, we thought about Jesus being completely human and completely divine, completely unique in that regard. When we think about that sometimes, and we think about his death, it's easy to think that because he was divine, maybe that didn't hurt quite so much. That's not true at all. Crucifixion as a form of execution was known for its brutality. It was a drawn-out form of torture designed to inflict the maximum amount of pain whilst keeping the victim still conscious. Beatings, flogging, scourging, nails driven into wrists and feet, severing nerves and causing unspeakable pain. Hours of agony and trauma usually ended in death by suffocation. And such was the impact of this form of execution, crucifixion, that it gives gives rise to our word that we use today of excruciating, which means coming from the cross. As well as the indescribable physical pain that Jesus suffered, he had to endure separation from Father God, culminating in that cry, my God, my God, why? Why? Why have you abandoned me? And yet Jesus chose to endure it. He chose to endure everything, everything that we read about. We read elsewhere in the Bible in Hebrews about Jesus. Because of the joy awaiting him, he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. And that joy was restoring the relationship between God and man. That joy, therefore, was you and me. What a thought. And that means Jesus' death was deeply personal, wasn't it? What Jesus did was for you and for me. The humiliation, the pain, the separation from his Father, all of it was for us. Do you know, in the New Testament, there are over 40 references specifically talking about Jesus' death being for us. He suffered for us in 1 Peter 3. He became a curse for us in Galatians 3. He became sin for us in 2 Corinthians 5. He died for us while we were still sinners in Romans 5. He loved us and gave himself up for us in Ephesians 5. He gave his body and his blood for us in Luke 22. He did it all for us. For you and for me. We know the story doesn't end there. All the power of evil conspired to have Jesus killed. Jesus himself, he recognized the intense battle that was raging. When at his arrest, he said to his captors, but this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. Jesus knew what was going on. 
And with his death, many will have assumed, well, that's that then. He talked a good game, but he's dead and it's finished. But we know God had other plans. Let me read again. Matthew 28 this time. After the Sabbath, at the first light of the new week dawned, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, Mary came to keep vigil at the tomb. <clears throat> Suddenly the earth reeled and rocked under their feet as God's angel came down from heaven, came right up to where they were standing. He rolled back the stone and sat on it. Shafts of light blazed from him as garments shimmered snow white. The guards at the tomb were scared to death. They were so frightened they couldn't move. The angel spoke to the woman. There's nothing to fear here. I know you're looking for Jesus, the one they nailed to the cross. He's not here. He was raised just as he said. Come and look at the place where he was placed. Now get on your way quickly and tell his disciples he's risen from the dead. He's going on ahead of you to Galilee. You'll see him there. That's the message. The woman, deep in wonder and full of joy, lost no time in leaving the tomb. They ran to tell the disciples. And Jesus met them, stopping them in their tracks. Good morning, he said. They fell to their knees, embraced his feet and worshipped him. Jesus said, you're holding on to me for dear life. Don't be frightened like that. Go, tell my brothers that they're to go to Galilee and that I'll meet them there. Jesus had risen from the dead. All sin, all sin of all time was forgiven. And death was defeated. That's what happened. That's what happened when Jesus raised from the dead. In his death, Jesus provided what was required of God by way of judgment and punishment for that sin that had entered humankind. For all sin forever. Because we aren't God, we can't fully understand why was the case, why that was the case. Why was that needed? And yet by faith, we can choose to believe it. And by choosing to believe it, we are given that everlasting life. God raising Jesus from the dead proved that death <clears throat> for us was, his death for us was fully sufficient to provide complete forgiveness from sin from anyone anyone who believed. And death was also defeated when Jesus was raised from the dead. Death was a consequence of sin entering the world. There wasn't any death prior to that. The author C.S. Lewis, when addressing the subject, he says this, Jesus has forced open a door that had been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, fought, and beaten the king of death. Everything is different because he has done so. Everything is different because he has done so. And the impact of Jesus' death and resurrection and sin is, is unpacked clearly and powerfully in Romans 6 where we read this. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We're no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We're sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Death no longer has any power over him. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead to the power of sin and alive to God 
through Christ Jesus. Remember God's big story, creation, the fall, redemption, restoration. Jesus' death and and resurrection completely overturned the impact of the fall by providing the redemption that was required. And in doing so, the the restoration of all things started. It was ushered in. It's commenced. And while sin and death continue to exist, their power has been defeated. The days of evil are numbered. Everything is different because of Jesus' death and resurrection. So how do we how do we respond to that? <clears throat> let, let me suggest a couple of things. During my preparation this week, the words of Isaac Watts' amazing hymn continually came to mind. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my bride. And as the words of this and the other verses went round and round in my mind, I really sensed the Lord say that actually the most important word there is when. When I survey the wondrous cross. When I take time to survey the wondrous cross. When I choose to survey the wondrous cross. When I make an effort in whatever my schedule is saying, to survey the wondrous cross. I know for me it's too easy to subconsciously say of the cross, yes, yes, I know about that. It's, I mean, it is great, but there's stuff to do. Choosing to stop, as we've done this morning, choosing to look, choosing to listen, that's when we'll be truly amazed and overwhelmed by what Jesus did for us. And when we do that, when we do take that time, when we do make that effort, when we do ask for that insight, we cannot fail to be amazed at Jesus' love for us. The last verse of that hymn says, Love so amazing, so divine. And you know, as I thought of that, I pictured who Jesus saw from the cross. Very often we picture ourselves looking and imagining what it would be like. Who did Jesus see? from the cross. He saw the thieves on on either side. And he was kind to them. He was loving to them. He was gentle and humble to them. He saw the group of soldiers who who killed him. And he asked his father to forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. He saw the Pharisees mocking him. He saw the crowds jeering him. He saw his own mum and John. And he was loving and caring to her. Mother, here is your son, and son, here is your mother. And I suppose as I thought of that, it made me think, do I know how much I'm loved? Do I know how much I'm loved? When we read about that, episode in John's gospel, John describes himself as the disciple Jesus loved. And you know, that, that wasn't, that's not a comparison thing. That wasn't some sort of arrogance that he was somehow top of the league as far as Jesus' love for his disciples goes, because we know Jesus' love is the same for everyone. 
John did that because he got it. That was more a message of assurance. That was a way he wanted to identify himself. I'm, I'm loved by Jesus. He totally got it. Maybe he was the first one out of the disciples to really get it, but isn't that an amazing thought? He knew how much he was loved. You can see that in his, his subsequent letters. Love is just all the way through whenever he writes later in life. So for us, I wonder if the question is just that. Do we know how much we're loved? There's nothing we can do to make Jesus love us any more or any less. His love is, it's on. It's 100% all of the time. Yes, we have an opportunity for our love to progress and to grow and to deepen and develop, but the other side, we don't need to worry about that. Do we know how much we're loved? I wonder what that looks like for each of us as we go into another week. To be able to think, oh, how can I set aside some time? How can I understand more about the depth of Jesus' love for me? How does it impact the way that I live? How can I share that? How can I set some things down that maybe are, are holding me back because I'm thinking Jesus can't love me because of this, this, and this? What's the Holy Spirit prompting in you right now? That's where our own individual responsibility comes in, isn't it? It is so great to all be together. And I have a responsibility to, to communicate what I believe God's saying. And there's, I'm sure some of that is just me, and we need to, you need to let that bit go. But we've all got a responsibility now to think, what's God saying? What am I going to do about it? In this week that's coming, never mind what's happened, never mind where in the future, what about today and the next day? Do we know how much we're loved? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the privilege of being here today. Thank you for the time and the space to stop. Thank you for what you've reminded us of. Thank you for what Jesus did, the difference it makes in us, the hope that we've got, the purpose that we have, the love that we can live in the reality of. Help us to know just how much we're loved. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.